Well, it is my privilege to be before you tonight. Uh, I, I can't remember the last time I stood before you in this setting. I know, I believe it was last fall in the family retreat I, I gave a lesson to you. I believe it's been a while since we stood in this capacity. And um, I extend my appreciation and thanks to the elders for this opportunity. Uh, it's, it's always a great opportunity to stand and, and speak from God's Word. Uh, and so, again, I thank them for that. There's a story that goes around. Um, it's a court setting. The prosecuting attorney calls his first witness to the stand, and we'll just say her name is Mrs. Jones. And he says, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She thinks for a second. She's trying to put her words perfectly as she wants to say them. And she says, why, yes, I know you. I've known you since you were a little boy. And frankly, I'm disappointed in you. He's sort of taken aback. He's not sure what he's thinking at this moment. She says, you're a liar. You're a cheat. You talk about people behind their backs. You've got one of the worst law practices in the state. You think you're a big shot, but really, you're nothing. Yeah, I know you pretty well. Well, he's just floored. The whole audience in the courtroom has heard his, basically his life told before him. So he, he's not really sure what else to say, except he says this. Well, Mr. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? And without hesitation, she says, why, well, I know him too. I've known him since he was a little boy. As a matter of fact, I used to babysit him. And I want to tell you something. He's a, he's a cheat. He's no good. He's got one of the shoddiest practices in the state. Well, yeah, I know him pretty well, too. Well, at this moment, the judge is sitting in his seat, and he's not sure what he's thinking at this moment. So he calls both attorneys to the bench, and he leans over, and he says, Before you ask her if she knows me, if you do, I'm throwing you in jail for contempt of court. <laughs> it's a frightening thing to think that somebody knows us. Um, yet there's one who knows us quite well. Tonight our lesson is entitled, If Jesus Wrote a Letter to Fountainhead. And it's using two passages as our base text. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. In Hebrews 10, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has written letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. The churches were not alike. Some were good, some were bad. Ephesus was strong in doctrine, but they were low in love. Smyrna had tribulation and poverty, but they were rich in faith. Pergamos had some who had held fast to the faith and also had some who had compromised that faith. Thyatira was growing in love, in faith, service, endurance, but yet they tolerated the prophetess Jezebel. Sardis had a name that they were alive but yet their actions showed that they were really dead. 
Philadelphia was the church of the open door. And Jesus was knocking at the door to get into their lives. And then you had the church at Laodicea, who was the lukewarm church. This, this evening, the first question we ask ourselves is this. If Jesus did write a letter to the church here at Fountainhead, what would he say? Would he characterize us as any of the, the seven churches of Asia Minor? Or would it be totally different? Would we have characteristics of them? Or would we have none of their characteristics whatsoever? Would he commend us? Would he say, the church of Fountainhead, great body of my people. They love the Lord. Or would he condemn us? Would he say, you know what? They're like Sardis. What would he say? Well, we don't know for sure what he would say because a letter has not been written like that. But we do have a letter that he has written. The New Testament. He has written a letter to us that we can read and we can study and we can apply it to ourselves and we can internalize it and we can share it with others at the same time. What might that letter say? Well, uh, again, I'm not sure, but we'll look into that here in a few minutes. Have you ever had someone say that they do know you? I've said it several times about people. I know them. I know her. I know him. I know that whole family. If you remember my dad, and you knew my dad, he knew a lot of people. He was related to a lot of people, and that was part of the problem. You had the Pitts, the Browns, the Lanes, the Groves, the Hodges. The list could go on and on. So if he said he knew somebody, he was telling the truth. He knew a lot of people. I remember one instance we were out. I was probably... 12, 13, we had gone to eat Sunday lunch in Franklin at the old Copper Kettle restaurant. And we're sitting at the, at the table and, and we're getting ready to leave and a family walks in and, and Dad says, I know that guy. And the rest of us, because we'd already been through it countless numbers of times growing up, we had endured the embarrassment countless numbers of times. And we're trying to talk him out of it. You don't know that guy, Dad. You don't know him. Let's just go. We've you know, we got things we've got to do this afternoon. You don't know him. No, I know that guy. I know him. He proceeds to get up and goes over and talks to the guy. He's trying to convince this guy that he knows him. And we're just all walking out like this. Because, again, we had been through that several times. But to say that you know somebody requires a close, personal, intimate relationship. Tonight, as we look at this lesson, as we look at the scripture, I want to suggest four things that might be included in this letter. Number one, I think the first thing that would be included is, I know you. If you go back to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and you look at how the letters are begun, every one of them says the following thing. I know your works. I believe this is how our letter would begin. Fountainhead, I know your works. I know what you've done. 
I know the good things that you have done. Jesus knows each of us as well. And he knows his church. John chapter 2, 24, 25 says, But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. In Revelation 2, 23, when he's speaking to the church of Thyatira, he says, And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Jesus examines us. He searches us. He searches our hearts. And he searches our minds. He wants us to be his people. All the time. Not sometimes. Not most of the time. Not a few of the times. He wants us all the time. And Matt touched on this this morning with his lesson. Every waking moment, he wants us to be his and be an instrument for him. Other examples in the New Testament, Jesus knew Nicodemus. He knew Zacchaeus. He knew the woman at the well and her marital status. He knew the rich young ruler. He knows me, and he knows you. We can't hide from him. We can't get away from him. He knows our level of of involvement. He knows our intent. It's easy for us here in in this place, in this town, in in our homes, in our workplace. It's easy for us to fool people. It's easy for us to wear one face here and another face somewhere else. Jesus knows us in all locations. We can't get away from him. Matthew 10, 29, 30 also says this. And if you look at the context of the scripture, he's been instructing his 12 apostles. They've been called. He's now sending them out. And he tells them this. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Jesus knows us like nobody else. Look with me at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And we'll look at the first six verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. What you find in this passage is God is searching us continually. We are his servants. He wants to know his servants. He knows, as we said earlier, he knows our motives. He knows our desires. He knows our intent. He knows our thoughts. He knows what we're going to say before we ever say it. 
I guess basically you say he knows us completely. If you want to sum it up. But if you look at verse 5, it, it makes it very clear. The purpose of his intimate knowledge is protective and it's helpful. And we'll see that here in just a minute. I think the second thing that he would put in this letter would be that he wants to be in our lives. As we've said earlier, so many times we shut Jesus out of our lives. We only want him when we're in trouble. Sammy said it this morning in class, and we all know this, but we get so caught up in our daily lives, and we get so caught up in those things around us, it's not one of those things that we really think about. We don't go to Jesus, or we don't go to God in prayer when things are working our way. We only go to him in prayer when it's gotten out of balance and things are working against us most of the time. But we need to be thankful for those things, to be grateful for those things when he has blessed us and when things are going as fantastic as they can. Some of the commendations that we find in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 4, Paul says to the church there, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, your election by God. In this passage, Paul is commending them for turning away from idols and giving their life to Jesus and serving Him and doing what they need to do to show their love for Him. You know, it's a funny thing, the, the, the words work and the words labor. I think a lot of times in our society they have negative connotations. Let's look at it from this standpoint. Work. Very well could be something that's pleasant. You know, you, you've always heard the adage, if you find something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. So what happens if you don't find something you love? What are you doing? Some people might say, that's labor. You could define labor as something that's strenuous to the point of fatigue. I think you could look at the church here at Thessalonica and you could say they were laboring for the Lord. They were fatigued to the point they had given all they could. They had given up the things of the world and they had had concentrated and they had embraced what Christ wanted them to embrace. Same book, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, it says this, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. You know, I think back to the moment that I was baptized and that was October 14, 1979. I remember it plain as day. It was a, a rather crisp fall Sunday. 
I remember the baptistry. The water was ice cold. But Brother J.R. Pugh put me in the watery grave, brought me out. I was excited to the point I jumped out of the baptistry. Now, partly because the water was cold. But I jumped out of the baptistry. I, I jumped all four steps out of the water. From that moment on, I went to school, told my friends, hey, this is what I just did yesterday. And I told them why I did it. I told my next door neighbor, he was a year or two younger than me, and I knew they went to church. I know he was getting to that point of the age of accountability. And I told him what I did and why I did it. I was telling everybody. I was excited. Because I found the truth. Now, I knew the truth because I was raised in the church. But it was more personal to me at this point. It was mine. It was no longer, you know, mom and daddy taking me to church. And, you know, every time the doors were open, no matter what the occasion was, we were there. This was mine now. And I embraced it. But if we looked in this letter that Jesus is writing to our, our congregation here, what would he commend us for? I've written down some things. I think he would commend us for our godly elders. I think he would commend them for making sure that sound doctrine is taught. Making sure that we do things in a decent order. I think he would commend us for the fact that we welcome visitors here. We're glad when visitors come in. Very rarely do we not welcome a visitor that walks through that front door back there. And I think you and I would be naive if we thought that every congregation was that way. Because I think we've all been places where no one has spoken to us at all. They've stared at us. They've not spoken to us. I think he would commend us for that. I think he would commend us for supporting our youth and making sure that we're training them and teaching them as they should be. And the list could go on and on. There are a lot of good things that we do. But I also think there will be some encouragements for us. And when you think about encouragements, there are things that make us or help us do something just a little bit better. Saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, he says this. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. We all know that the walk that's mentioned here is our Christian walk. It's our, it's our daily life. It begins with our faith, but it doesn't end there. It continues on. And it grows as we nurture it. But we have to do it with a purpose. We can't just walk in the door, sit on the pew, sing a few songs, bow in prayer, walk out, and that's all there is to it. We have to have that walk with a purpose. As I said earlier, it has to be ours. We have to make it personal. 
Colossians 1.10 says this, that you may have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself. I hope what, what I do daily is pleasing. I hope that what I do daily doesn't bring reproach on the church. Colossians 2 6 says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You know, as, as we think about this walk, there should be a rooting to it. It should have a foundation to it. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he also, Paul also says this. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. There's what we need to do. More and more. Just when you think you've done enough, do some more. Just as you start to get tired, take a breath. Do some more. I've kind of entertained this thought the last couple of days. What if it's Christ is, is bearing his cross to Golgotha before Simon the Cyrene ever comes around? And Jesus just stops and says, I've done enough. Where would that leave us? Or you could take it back a few years before that. What if as he's teaching through his parables, parable of the soil, parable of the coin, the dragnet, the list could go on, the prodigal son. And after he's told the story and he's taught his lesson, he says, you know, is everybody sitting there and they're not fully grasping what he's teaching? And he says, I've done enough. I can't do any more. Again, where would that leave us? That leave us lost. Turn to Hebrews 10 with me. Hebrews 10. And let's start at verse 29. I'm sorry, verse 19. We'll go through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us... Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. If you start with verse 22, and he says, let us draw near, Jesus wants us to come to him. Doesn't, doesn't matter what the situation is. He wants us to come to him. Don't figure it out on your own. Put it in his hands. Verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Well, what is hope? It's a confident expectation of what's, what our future holds. What does our future hold? Verse 24, he says, let us consider how to stimulate one another. Let's observe and let us contemplate how we can be an impact on somebody else. What can we do to help them? How can we serve them? And I want you to notice what verse 24 says. Because verse 24 tells us why we do verse 25. Verse 24 tells us why we do verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling and encouraging one another. So what encouragements would he include in this letter? I'm not really sure. Again, I've written down a few things. Spread the gospel to the community. More than we are. More than we have. Maybe a, a more concentrated commitment on our part to become involved in all the programs that, that the elders have put in place. Maybe it's on a personal note. And again, I'm included in all of this. Maybe it's a deeper commitment on our part. Those are all encouragements, things that we can do better. Thirdly, I think he would say, I want you to listen. If you go back to each of the letters of the seven churches, they all say this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's important for us to listen to Jesus. Because he always tells the truth. You know, we've told our kids since the time they were little that we're always going to tell them the truth. We're not going to lie to them. We're not going to deceive them. We're not going to tell them a half-truth. We're going to tell them the truth. Sometimes the truth isn't easy to hear. But you know what? John 8.32 says, you shall know the truth. And it's going to set you free. Lies, deceptions, half-truths will never free you from sin. And until we give ourselves to the truth... We're always going to be in bondage to it. Always. I think the last thing that he might include in this letter is this. I want to give you a promise. And a promise is a commitment to do something. If we look at the seven churches, to each one he made a promise. To Ephesus. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. 
That's a special intimacy with the Lord. To Smyrna, he said, in verse, chapter 2, verse 11 of Revelation, he said that he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. We're going to be delivered from death. To Pergamos, verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written which no one knows except him who receives it. That's for those who won't compromise. To Thyatira, in verse 26 through 28, he says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them. Verse 28 says, I will give him the morning star. It's a reassurance of our inheritance. To Sardis, chapter 3, verse 5, he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. We will be remembered and we will be honored. By Jesus. To Philadelphia in verse 12 he says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God, and he shall go out no more. The pillar is the most stable part of the temple. But beyond that, we'll be identified with God. How awesome is that? Even to Laodicea, the lukewarm church, verse 21 he says, To him who overcomes... I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We'll be highly exalted. And you think about those seven promises. They are incredible. To think that we get to enjoy those. So what promise would he make to the church here at Fountainhead? What promise would he make to you and to me personally? Well, he's told us. It's a home with him in heaven. It's that crown of life if we're found faithful. So tonight as we close things up, we need to realize that we need to stay close to God. And the most important thing is to get to heaven. Beyond that, take somebody with us. To do so, we can't let anything get in our way. No sin, no stumbling block, no problem. Jesus wants us to come to him. And we need to know Jesus in a personal way. Tonight, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, why not? What are you waiting for? If you've not obeyed the gospel, tonight is a great opportunity. The water's ready. There are many here who would be glad to help you. If you've had a relationship with Jesus in the past and it's weakened, you've allowed things to separate you from him, Make it right. Now is the opportunity. The letter 
has not officially been written yet to you. If we can help you in any way, come now as we stand and sing.